Greetings listeners, Jonathan Harding here on Culture Club, and boy do I have lots of stuff for you today. Two things, a brief gaming news segment, and then a discussion on shows and movies you can watch from home. Jumping right into it, we have the Epic vs. Apple lawsuit, which started on the 4th. I'll spare you the exact details for now, as I'll probably dig into the story more expansively in future, perhaps once the lawsuit has ended. Basically, Apple takes a 30% cut of all sales on the iOS App Store, and Epic Games isn't happy with that. Epic has proven themselves woefully unprepared for these legal proceedings, because the case has publicly blown wide open all of their business dealings, including as yet unannounced or otherwise cancelled projects, from the many developers whose games are sold through the Epic Games Store. As such, many documents that were not properly sealed or redacted beforehand are now public record. Needless to say, many of their business partners are not particularly happy with them right now. Meantime, Apple is just laughing their heads off because they actually came prepared. Aside from that, it doesn't look like Epic was prepared for just how much explaining they'd have to do, given that neither Apple's lawyers nor the judge presiding over the lawsuit really understand the games industry very much. I kid you not, there was a question, um, what is Xbox, and one of Microsoft's representatives sorry, had to explain the differences between Xbox on PC, the Xbox Series X, Xbox Game Pass, Xbox uh, X Cloud, and all these other things, and the lawyer's just like, well, what? what are you talking about? There's a lot of stuff, uh, lots of nomenclature and jargon that no one really seems to understand. I do kind of feel sorry for the judge. What has very quickly become abundantly clear, however, is that Epic isn't fighting for the independent developers they claim to be helping by fighting to lower Apple's revenue split. The judge managed to catch Epic CEO Tim Sweeney off guard on multiple occasions, and it's starting to look like Epic's actual angle is just to make more money for themselves. Their case isn't looking particularly strong at the moment. If you're interested in the games industry, and would perhaps like a closer look at how this unusually secretive industry operates on the inside, the proceedings are public and, well, so are many of the documents they concern. Let's just say it's been eye-opening. But now onto the meat and potatoes of this episode. Shows and movies you can watch from home. This episode's topic is spurred on by the fact that I wanted to review Disney's latest film, Luca, but it's not strictly available here. In the past, I've used an American Friends Disney Plus account but, and a VPN, but Disney Plus is $10 a month as is, and they're charging an extra $30 for their most recent films. They did that for Mulan, they did it for... What was the other one that released a while ago? I can't remember. I didn't watch it. And Luca, uh, so said American friend, said, no, they're not buying that. And I said, you know what? I completely understand. That is a lot. A movie ticket at the cinemas, even in the States, doesn't cost that much. I think they're like between $14 and $15, if not a little bit more. Um, so to pay that much to watch from home is absolutely ridiculous. This hit me with the realization that I should probably be recommending and reviewing stuff that you lot can actually watch from home without virtually crossing international borders. There's a bit of a grey area there where it comes to VPNs. Uh, before we begin, I'd like to mention that all my recommendations are on Netflix, given how popular the platform is here in SA, over other platforms like Mobi, Curiosity Stream, and the rest. First up is something family-friendly. 
If you're into nature documentaries at all, David Attenborough's Life in Color premiered, I think, maybe a month ago, uh, and is definitely worth a watch. It's three episodes long, so nothing like his other documentary series, many of which are far, far longer. He's got another one on Netflix. I cannot remember its name, but if you just search up his name there, it, it's another lengthy documentary series. It's also pretty good. If you're an avid documentary watcher, however, you might find the information in Life in Color to be a little bit lacking. There's very little here that you might not have learned, or that you wouldn't have learned, sorry, from other documentaries, but the overall production value, especially, and I do mean this, especially, the cinematography and the visuals make this worth the time. They developed entirely new cameras that could see different light wavelengths specifically for this series. Some of the shots are spectacular. I cannot get over how good they are. Following on from that, I have an anime called Yasuke, spelt Y-A-S-U-K-E, set in a sci-fi fantasy version of feudal Japan and taking place right around the tail end of the Warring States period. Based on a historical figure, Yasuke, the titular character, is a black samurai, an African who finds himself in Japan as a slave to a merchant. He soon earns his freedom and trains as a samurai under one Oda Nobunaga, another historical figure of massive importance to Japanese history. Yasuke aids Oda in his quest to unify Japan. The crux of the story is that they lose the war, and 20 years later, Yasuke is living a quiet life, or as quietly as possible, as a boatman in a small riverside village under the name Yasan. He actively attempts to avoid combat where possible, but is pulled into the resistance, where he finds himself fighting against the daimyo yet again. And this time, she is far more powerful. I cannot recommend Yasuke enough. The show is relatively short, at only six episodes. Each is about 30 minutes long. The soundtrack is amazing. Seriously, I've added it to my Spotify playlists. It's, it's good. It's really, really good. Um, though the show had an American director and writer in LaShawn Thomas, whose previous works involved the boondocks, it was animated by Japanese animation studio, Studio Mappa, who are renowned for their amazing animation quality and fight sequences. Like, in, in the anime industry, when you hear that something was done by Studio Mappa, you know it's going to be good. Um, interestingly, Netflix has the English audio track set as the default, but this is one of those rare examples in anime where the English voice acting is actually good, like, really good. The Japanese voice acting is, as always, stellar. They just never seem to get it wrong. As an aside, the show does feature a bit of blood and gore, so it's not for children. Again, animation is a medium, not a genre. There's no rule that states that it should or will always be child-friendly. And, you know, I know Disney put that memo out way back when, but Japan never got it. I've got two more anime to briefly discuss. I'll be quick, I promise. This will be shorter than the SK section. And then we'll get on to the other stuff. The first of these two is Dota Dragon's Blood, a fantasy series set in the universe of Dota, a very popular multiplayer game. As a fantasy, what's always caught me off guard about Dota's universe is how non-standard its fantasy is. Yes, you have elves and talking trees and dragons and the like, but mages don't run around hurling fireballs or lightning from their hands. The magic takes on a more celestial role. It's vague, powerful, and in some ways downright eldritch. 
As far as child friendliness is concerned, this one's definitely for the teenagers, though as an adult you may want to watch along too, if only to broaden your horizons. It is a genuinely good show, if a bit short. And it ends on a cliffhanger. That's a spoiler, I know, but there is a season two on the way. It, it will probably be out before the end of the year, given that they announced season two like two days after the show aired. The final anime on this list is Castlevania. Season 4 is on the way, this one is bloody, gory, and definitely not for under-18s. The animation is amazing, the characters are fun, the story is engaging, and that's all I'm going to say because I could gush about this show for ages, so I'm just going to move on. On the opposite end of the spectrum, I have an animated show that definitely is child-friendly. Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous. I wanted to talk about this show back when it first aired. I think it started in like mid-2020, and then we got a season two towards the end of last year. Um, anyway, I've now finally got a chance to talk about it. While Camp Cretaceous is definitely aimed at children, don't take that to mean that it's not a mature show. There is something here for everyone. The show carefully sows the seeds of different ideas and plot threads, hitting every note perfectly, so when things start to come together, it is both engaging and satisfying. Something I appreciate is how Camp Cretaceous never speaks down to the audience. It knows that its target audience are children, but it also knows that longtime Jurassic Park fans are going to be watching. It encourages you to think for yourself, to solve the mystery before the characters do, and the internet has really taken that to heart. Um, <laughs> you should see the fan theories floating around, it's, it's been a lot of fun. At the same time, though, I should warn you, while the show is meant for pre-teens and teenagers, it's more than just an adventure series. Certain episodes could be classified as part of the horror genre. That said, there is no blood and no deaths happen on screen. They are merely implicit, much like the first two Jurassic Park films. Um, if you are a parent and you want to let your below preteen child watch this show, I would probably recommend not just leaving it on in the background. I think you might want to sit and watch this one with them, even if only for the kid and not for yourself. Anywho, now is the perfect time to get started on Camp Cretaceous, as its third season is set to be airing, I think, in the next quarter. It should be in like two or three months. They haven't, I don't think they've given us a set release date yet, but they've amped up the advertising. It should be soon. Netflix likes to do things quickly. If you're an adult and you're looking for something interesting to watch, well, I have something very interesting for you. In 2017, Netflix bought the rights to and materials for a very, very cool project. A film called The Other Side of the Wind. Orson Welles' last project, one which he did not live long enough to see completed. Well. Netflix finished it as faithfully as they could, and for some reason they didn't really advertise it, or the documentary they made about the film's production, titled They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. Both are definitely worth watching, and I cannot, cannot, I know I've already said I can't recommend stuff enough, but I really cannot recommend this enough, especially if you're a film buff. It, just both of them. Watch The Other Side of the Wind first, and then They'll Love Me When I'm Dead things start to make a little bit more sense. It's semi-autobiographical for Wells himself, though he denied that at the time. Obviously. 
If you're looking for a more extensive viewing experience for, say, after the children have gone to bed, there's Peaky Blinders, a crime show set in England in 1919, following a notorious gang and their leader who's set on moving up in the world regardless of the cost. If that premise alone doesn't grab you, I don't know what will. The show's five seasons long, with six episodes per season, though don't take that to mean it's short. Each episode is just a little bit under an hour long, so this one will keep you occupied for a while. Again, this one's got some violence in it, definitely not for children. As far as shows to avoid, there is definitely one in particular on Netflix. Age of Samurai Battle for Japan is an attempt at a documentary series. The show tries to explain the Warring States period, introducing viewers to numerous important historical figures across the, few, the last few decades of the era. The experts they bring in to explain things are amazing. There's nothing wrong with them. They wrote all the literature there is, at least here in the West, about the Warring States period, and they're as close to first-hand sources as one could really get. They've staked their entire careers on this, but whoever was in charge of editing the show would cut them off at every other turn, so you never really hear the full story from them. I should like to have a word with the show's editor. But the other problem are the more dramatized sections. The samurai are shown wearing padded leather armor, which never happened at all anywhere in history because it takes a lot of cattle to make actual padded leather armor. It's impractical and wasteful, and far better alternatives exist. Uh, the show also portrays many large-scale battles as small-scale skirmishes, and uses the same three sets of locations over and over and over again, despite said locations needing to actually be drastically different for the purposes of the documentary. I've seen YouTubers make higher quality documentaries with more historical accuracy than Age of Samurai. I would really love to know what went wrong, because up front it looks like this show actually has a pretty high production value, so it would be interesting to find out. Perhaps in future I'll recommend some educational YouTube channels. That could be quite interesting. That said, this episode is now 15 minutes long. That's more than enough. I'm gonna call it here. I hope you've enjoyed, and I certainly hope you'll enjoy some of my recommendations. That's Jonathan Harding, signing off. Cheers.